Blog Talk Radio. Welcome to the Neil Garfield Show, a presentation sponsored by www.livinglies.wordpress.com, GTC Honored, and The Garfield Firm, serving all 50 states with news and analysis of the latest bank scams against borrowers, homeowners, consumers, and investors, and providing legal representation throughout Florida. This program is for general information only. It is not a solicitation for services or legal representation and should never be used as a substitute for advice from a licensed professional. And now, here's world-renowned financial expert, attorney, and blogger, Neil Garfield. Hi, Neil Garfield here, and this is Thursday, April 4th, 2019. Get rid of the shame, get rid of the doubt, and get rid of the feelings of inferiority. Homeowners who signed papers were in fact unknowingly issuing unregulated securities for the sole benefit of investment banks. No sharing with homeowners, almost no sharing with investors. The investment banks, we used to call them brokerage houses, kept virtually all the money they created. Yes, created, not earned. Those investment banks converted their roles as intermediaries, that is to say securities brokers, to acting as though they were principals, and then keeping the money concealed from the real parties in interest, the investors who put up the money, and the borrowers who signed loan papers. So stop feeling guilty about cheating the poor banks out of payment to which they were entitled. They're not. This isn't banking, and despite all appearances to the contrary, it was not really lending either, when you back up and look at it end to end. And that is the part that is missing from the analysis when lawyers look at it strictly as a loan transaction. They're getting lost looking at the spark plug when they should be looking at the car. The true picture is full of holes. It is up to the foreclosure defender to reveal those holes until a judge is uncomfortable with the proof. It's a gradual process through litigation. And you have to announce that your case is going to take longer. You have to aggressively pursue time for hearings, etc., in order to enforce discovery. Each step along that way is what produces a good end result. That's when the rubber stamp judge's head turns. And that's when he or she rules for the so-called borrower. Judges don't rule for borrowers because they believe that securitization is a scam. They rule for borrowers when the securitization scheme or scam 
fails on the proof. And the way you reveal that failure of proof is the secret to winning foreclosure cases. Every time you defend a foreclosure aggressively, you're throwing a monkey wrench into a well-planned, well-oiled, fraudulent scheme to deprive society of the benefits of a level marketplace where everyone has a chance to participate and no one is favored over everyone else. It's enough that the banks are bigger and more sophisticated. For them to have tipped the marketplace the way they did in this case should have landed many of them in jail. It didn't. The entire scheme depends completely on concealing the fact that the loan is the cornerstone of a larger transaction wherein the players are going to make money in multiples of the amount loaned, but the actual real parties in interest are not going to make multiples. They're not going to share in the multiples. If the banks had disclosed that they were going to resell the name, identity, signature, and reputation of the borrower, and the borrower still signed, then so what, right? If, if the borrower is okay with the bank selling or reselling his name, identity, signature, and reputation, then the marketplace is level. And if the borrower gets the raw end of that deal, then that's how capitalism works. But they didn't disclose it. And if they had, you've got to believe that borrowers would have gone shopping for people who would let them share in the bounty, or they wouldn't have signed at all because they didn't like the fact that banks would be reselling their name, identity, signature, and reputation on the open market, and, and which turned out to be also a sale of their future. Winning foreclosure cases, sometimes it's the homeowner who wins. Lots of times, I know of thousands of cases where that is what happened. If, if it's the homeowner, it's only because the homeowner defended aggressively and the bank or servicer actually had nothing. Tonight, I'm going to discuss how foreclosure defense attorneys win cases in which they are defending homeowners from foreclosures. Keep in mind that the sole purpose of securitization in every form is diversification of risk. That's what it's supposed to be. And that's what it is if it actually happens. So the risk of loss is diversified. And by, net, by definition, diversification means that the owners of the debt are diversified, which means there are many of them. Which means that only owners of debt can suffer a loss due to non-payment and that loss would be suffered by multiple parties. So when the banks present a single claimant, they are doing so in defiance of the basic black-letter principles of securitization. If they are presenting a single claimant, then by definition that claimant must 
be acting in a representative capacity and not as owner of the debt. So they are presenting the claimant as a party authorized by law to enforce the debt, maybe on behalf of the owners of the debt. But without asserting for whom they are enforcing the debt, they have not presented any true claimant. Read carefully when they name a plaintiff. Read carefully when they name a beneficiary under a deed of trust. If you analyze the words, you'll see that nobody is actually named. And that is where the first big hole is. They can say they're enforcing on behalf of certificate holders, but the facts are that the certificate holders have no right title or interest to the debt. Certificate holders have a promise from an obligor who is the supposed remit trust, but in reality, it's the investment bank doing business under the name of uh, a so-called remit trust that doesn't actually exist. They won't say they're enforcing for contract holders in the aftermarket after the certificates are issued because that would expose the basic holes in what they're calling securitization but is really a Ponzi scheme. The contract holders have no right to enforce the debt, note, or mortgage even though they may hold equitable or legal title. One thing's for sure, the investment bank is not holding anything anymore. It's divested completely. So the investment bank can't say that they're enforcing on behalf of themselves, even though they funded the origination of the loan or the acquisition of the, of the debt because they have long since divested themselves of any ownership of the debt several times over. If securitization was real, then the Remick Trust would not merely be a, fiction, a fictitious name used by the investment bank to sell certificates and then order foreclosures. Now, the Remick Trust would actually be the owner of the debt. So the lawyers would then be able to say that the Remick Trust paid for the debt and they would be able to prove that. Has anyone seen such an allegation or assertion by lawyers in court? I haven't, you never will, because the current version of securitization is a sham and a scam. Normally, the only defense to foreclosure is payment, but payment has already been made to the investment bank. So you need to show the gaps in their case without taking on the burden of proving facts you can't prove. I can't uh, emphasize that enough. Homeowners get, and sometimes lawyers get so excited about the reality of this that they start alleging what really happened. But they can't prove it. So the next best thing is to know what really happened and to know what gaps and holes there are in the proof and to reveal those gaps, those holes. Truth be told, not even the investment banks could prove some of these facts because of all the off-balance sheet transactions that got spun out into the shadow banking market where they're now virtually untraceable. 
Tonight we talk about how both the banks and the lawyers are getting away with it and what we can do to force them to actually prove their case and be held accountable when they present false claims. Remember that it is more likely than not that if your house is foreclosed and sold, the proceeds will not be used to pay anyone who owns the debt. So stop feeling shaky and and ashamed about defending. Shame is undermining fairness in the justice system when it comes to foreclosures. Remember, you could always come back and listen to this show again or any of the other shows or send it to a friend by going to blogtalkradio.com and looking up the Neil Garfield show and clicking on it. Um, under the title of this show, How to Use Legal Discovery in Fighting for uh, Fraud Closures. I'm broadcasting live from Duval County, Florida, and this show is brought to you by the Living Lies blog, GTC Honors, Lending Lies, Amgar, and the Garfield Firm. And the show is especially brought to you because of donations to the Living Lies blog from listeners like you. Thank you. And for those of you who are not contributors, we ask that you hit the donate button on the blog and pledge whatever you think you can afford. If this show has value for you, if our work on the blog and our radio shows, which occurs without payment or any other support from outside, has, if that has value to you, then please chip in. We do a lot of work here in order to make this happen. Please make a contribution to help us continue helping you and all consumers. The path to victory in defending foreclosures is based upon the simple premise that the claimant or the claim does not actually exist. Let me repeat that. The path to victory in defending foreclosures is based upon the simple premise that the claimant or the claim does not actually exist, sometimes both, many times both. If your adversary really owns your debt, it's because they paid for it, in which case they probably are entitled to payment, unless, of course, they owe you money in recoupment for abusing the loan closing process to mask a much larger fraudulent scheme of which the loan was only a small piece. The strategy is to reveal the gaps in the proof by showing a lack of foundation, lack of personal knowledge, lack of truth. Basically, you're undermining the credibility of the other side. That occurs in a step-by-step process. It does not occur with a magic bullet. There is no single statement, report, analysis, or whatever that's going to instantly tip the scales so that the burden of uh, persuasion falls solely on the, the lawyer's who are representing the claimant in in foreclosure. You don't accept the burden of proof by alleging facts you can't prove. The strategy is to focus on the prima facie case of the foreclosing party, the claimant. That foreclosing party needs to, to 
prove a prima facie case in order to support the foreclosure, and that's true whether it is is a judicial state or a non-judicial state. Poke holes in that successfully and persuasively, and you win. I've seen hundreds of cases where a so-called rubber-stamping judge ruled for the borrower on key issues that caused either a judgment for the homeowner or more often than not resulted in a confidential settlement. The settlement occurs because your opposition must avoid at any cost the publication of cases in which the claim or the claimant is shown to be non-existent. That could affect not only your case, but thousands of other cases. And that's the value of your case, as I've mentioned before, on this show and on the blog. Your job is to get to the point where you present a credible threat that your case will reveal the sham nature of the claim and the claimant. The tactics used to achieve this are ordinary litigation tools that are set forth in every compilation of the rules of civil procedure. Each state has its own, the federal system has its own. Motions directed at the pleadings are not generally successful unless you get a judge willing to listen to the fact that a claimant has not actually been named. Judges are having a hard time with that argument even though it's right in front of them. So the next step is to file an answer in judicial cases and a complaint in non-judicial cases that challenges every single assumption or implication of the claim without exception. In judicial cases, you would also add actions in recruitment to your affirmative defenses that track the formation of the alleged contract that seek disgorgement that, uh, and even quiet title if the fact pattern supports it. Then comes the real work that most pro se litigants and many lawyers are either unable or unwilling to do. This is where the cases are won or lost. Most cases are won and lost in discovery. The mistakes involved with discovery are many, but they all emanate from the belief that discovery is really just a thing to do rather than an effective tool you're going to use against your opposition. It's just a thing to, if it's just a thing to do, then don't do it. All you're doing is telegraphing a defense then that enables your opposition to surprise you at trial with some novel argument that you're unprepared to contest. If you really want to win, then you need to send out carefully constructed demands for discovery at the very least in the form of interrogatories, requests for admission, and requests for production. And please, pro se litigants, don't think you can do this on your own. You need to sit down with a lawyer who's experienced in litigation and can help you craft these interrogatories, requests for admission, and requests for production, and establish a strategy for what you're going to do going forward because you know that the answers you're going to get or the responses are either going to be non-existent or evasive. So next, you have to create footprints in the sand 
to show that you tried to resolve disputes amicably, emails, telephone calls, etc. The lawyer will be very polite and basically tell you to take a flying leap. Then you file motions to compel, and when they still don't comply with a court order that told them to comply, then you file a motion for sanctions, and eventually you file a motion in limine. I'll get to that in a second. And be prepared to object to testimony or documents based upon violations of the discovery rules. Your objection at trial, if sustained, ends their case, as well as objections based on hearsay, foundation, relevance, etc. Those objections are easy because most lawyers don't know how to ask the right questions in the right way, and the foreclosure mill lawyers are no exception. If you catch the man, at the evidence is excluded. That is how some cases end up uh, decided contrary to what seems obvious. Bad presentation of evidence. On the defense side, you don't need it evidence per se, what you need is to poke holes in the prima facie case that is the evidence proffered by your opposition. In foreclosure, bad presentation of evidence and bad presumptions are the foundation for every defense. This requires patience and persistence to gradually turn the head of a judge who came into the courtroom annoyed that you are contesting what they think is an inevitable result. But that same judge will rule in your favor if you can persuade the judge that too many things are missing to allow the foreclosure to go through. It doesn't mean convincing the judge that you don't owe the money. It doesn't mean convincing the judge that your opposition is composed of thieves and crooks and, and, and bad people. All that may be true, maybe not. The judge is going to rule because, according to the evidentiary rules and the procedural rules, the gaps are too wide to sustain a judgment for the claimant in foreclosure. It becomes a matter of procedure, which is to say that the judge doesn't want to allow sloppy paperwork and unsupported testimony to uh, uh, provide a benefit, even though the judge might think that the party making the errors has a valid claim. Judges at their root are there to call balls and strikes. So let's look at these steps one by one, starting with your answer or the basic elements of a complaint to stop a foreclosure in a judicial state. Answers to foreclosure complaints filed in judicial states should say either the allegation in each allegation in the complaint filed for foreclosure is true or false by simply admitting or denying. Complaints in non-judicial states must, because of non-judicial procedures, essentially do the same by stating implied allegations and then denying them point by point. 
in some ways, this gives the homeowner in non-judicial states greater leverage and more freedom to set forth the issues of the case than in judicial states where you are limited to denying only the allegations that were actually made by the claimant. Since you are in a non-judicial state, you are in essence writing the complaint that you are contesting, you can say anything you want about that claim and lay out what is implied in their notice of substitution of trustee, their notice of default, the notice of sale. Then deny it and state your reasons without asserting too many facts because the facts you allege are the facts you must prove. Your real strategy is to say there's an absence of foundation for the existence of the claim or the claimant. In judicial foreclosures, it is wise to file affirmative defenses with your answer. Those affirmative defenses establish matters in issue and will generally support your, reason, your reasons for wanting and demanding discovery, reasons that will be challenged if you strike a nerve. If you haven't struck a nerve, then you haven't filed the right affirmative defenses. You should be asking for disgorgement of all money paid by the homeowner since the party who collected it had no right to do so, if the fact pattern supports that. You should be demanding quiet title and recoupment, not damages, for violation of the FDCPA and perhaps other statutes like RICO. Remember that the statute of limitations does not apply to recoupment in most states as an affirmative defense. It's good up to the amount of the claim that was filed against the homeowner. Check with local counsel on that. In non-judicial states, you can't plead recoupment because it's an affirmative defense and a homeowner is forced to be the one filing suit. Then move immediately into discovery and put the pressure on. Don't use boilerplate forms. Judges hate boilerplate forms. And on the federal bench, they're looking at ways to ban the use of boilerplate forms of discovery and boilerplate responses. The judges are keenly aware of the fact that forcing the parties to be specific will result in more settlements and fewer trials. Discovery needs to be tailored to this specific case and the specific issues that are matters to be decided at trial. Since you're probably limited um, in the first set of interrogatories to 25 questions, including subparts, you need to go straight to the heart of the matter. But first, you need to identify exactly who is answering and what is the basis of their knowledge for answering these questions. This step is often skipped. By failing to have someone with actual knowledge answer the questions, they've opened themselves up for sanctions. Every motion to compel, every motion for sanctions, a motion in limine brings to the attention of the court that the issue of the viability of the claim and the status of the claimant is front and center. You also need to identify custodians of records that you think will show the absence of a claim or the absence of status of the claimant. Then you need to go to the heart of whether the debt is owned by anyone in the chain, and if so, who is that and how you can confront that assertion. Ask for the title of certain documents where they're kept and by whom, but more importantly, ask what are known as contention interrogatories. They start off with 
language like this, do you contend that the plaintiff's name is U.S. Bank? Do you contend that the plaintiff's name is U.S. Bank as trustee for Sasco Certificate Series, etc.? Do you contend that said name plaintiff is the owner of the debt? Is the plaintiff a legal entity maintaining books and records uh, that include the subject loan as, a as an asset receivable? You want to smoke them out in clear, unequivocal language, so when they refuse to answer, and they will, or they answer evasively, you can file a motion to com compel, then a motion for sanctions, and then finally a motion in limine that stops them from proffering evidence that they refuse in response to your lawful demands for discovery. There's lots more that can be said here, and remember that requests for admission can sometimes lead to the recovery of attorney's fees uh, if you prove a fact that they denied. Lots more. We're here to help you. Uh, go to the blog. Go to LendingLies.com. Send us a statement uh, uh, for a free preliminary review. And thank you for joining me. We'll see you next week. Thanks for listening to our broadcast. We hope that you tell your friends about us and let them know that there is hope and help in this financial crisis. Tune in every week to The Neil Garfield Show for free information and advice and visit our blog daily at The Living Lies Blog. We provide support services, the latest strategies, analysis, expert consultations, testimony and declarations to use in your battle against the largest economic crime in human history. For information concerning Neil, the team at Living Lies, or the law firm, go to www.livinglies.wordpress.com or call 520-405-1688. The opinions expressed on this broadcast are those of the host and should not be attributed to any other person or entity. Ryan here and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, were prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Waiting on a tax return? Hopefully, it ends up in your hands. Fraudulent tax returns due to identity theft increased by 30% in 2023. If you're in a bind this tax season, LifeLock can help. Our U.S.-based restoration specialists are experts dedicated to helping solve your identity theft issues. And all LifeLock plans are backed by the Million Dollar Protection Package. So we'll reimburse you up to the limits of your plan if you lose money due to identity theft. Help protect your information this tax season with LifeLock. Save up to 25% your first year at LifeLock.com aware.